so good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Kesson, and to everyone here and online, we want to say good morning. Um, I'm going to jump into a message in just a few minutes, but before we do so, I want to highlight something. So um, whether you've been here at Kesson or uh, for a long time, or maybe you're new, I, one of the things we like to talk about is some of our core values, and, and one of them from the very beginning has been that our heart for partnering with local uh, existing organizations that are already doing great work in our area. So sometimes when you plant a church or, or you have a lot of grand ideas about the, the way in which you can impact the community, and sometimes churches kind of overextend themselves and try to start all of those ministries under their own umbrella. Well, our heart from the beginning has been, hey, can we find great organizations that are already doing great work, and can we resource them? They're probably, to be completely honest, probably better at ministering in that way than we are since they've been doing it for a while. And so um, we have some ministry partners here at Kesed. I wanted to highlight, we have a, a new webpage uh, that, is, that talks about some of the ministry partners that we have. And what I want to do today is highlight just a, a new ministry partner that we have. Um, Teach One to Lead One is a national, uh, but yes, we can clap for that. <laughs> but you guys know what it is. They don't, all right? Um, <laughs> so it's a wonderful organization um, that is impacting students in our community in, uh, by mentoring. And so instead of me sharing more, I wanted to just quickly share with you a video um, and tell you a little bit more about it at the end of that. So watch with me. It's, it's an absolute impossible thing for the teacher and the educators to do the emotional social equipping and the educational equipping. This is where it's vital for mentors to come in and step in the gap. Teach One to Lead One is a premier community mentoring program that equips caring adult mentors to bring hope and stability to kids at risk by teaching truth through universal principles to lead them into a life of purpose and potential. Kids are suffering right now. There's a lot of stuff going on in the community. Um, I was joking with some adults the other day, and you know the old stories of I walk to school uphill both ways in the snow, and adults kind of feel like they had it rough. Actually, these kids have it rough. School is a lot harder, a lot more rigorous. The competition is a lot more intense. And then throw on top of that problems in society that we have, and it's manifesting itself in the school setting. And we're now to a point that we need to connect with these kids and it needs to be a lot bigger than education. They need social support. And having these mentors come in and connect with them and these kids see positive adult relationships that are strong and structured, that's what education needs to become. And to think that we have people in our community willing to come in and work with these kids and show them these positive relationships, I wish I could have it in every single class. I wish I could have every adult possible come walk the halls and be with these kids because we need it. We really need it now.
we wanted to highlight uh, that for you. What we know about discipleship and reaching people for Christ is that it happens through relationship. And so this is a really incredible way to do so. And as a guy who did youth ministry for a lot of years, I know um, I, got, I got about 90 minutes a week with kids. And so having, as a person who is educating and influencing, having more people on the team to do that, it just, it just blesses and, and, and moves us towards that goal of discipling and loving our kids. So we'd love for you to, to pray about being a part of, of that ministry and then the others on the website. Um, and today, actually, the Teach One to Lead One team is out in the lobby here at Kessid, um, so you can learn some more about that. We'd, again, I'd love for you to check by, go by the table, ask some questions, and see if they're, um, God might be kind of tugging at your heart to mentor and love on some kids in the area. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's dive into our message here today. We are in a series called Where the Girls Are. Uh, it's a teaching series about myths and misconceptions that we think that the Bible teaches us about women. This has been um, an amazing and uh, eye-opening and a lot of different words, the whole spectrum of this series thus far. If you've been a part, if you haven't um, been a part of all the teachings, we'd love for you to go back and kind of go on the full journey with us. But um, what last week though, I actually got to get away with my family to the beach. We have some family in Ocean Park, Long Beach area, and we go every year and spend some time there. It's kind of our happy place. I did watch online, um, but we got to get away just for a, a moment, right? And um, we have some tradition. I don't know about you and your family and your kind of vacations or anything, but we have some traditions. And one of the things that we love to do, or I have an 11 year old boy, is we love to go kart at the beach, right? And here's the thing, if, if I don't know if you remember, right, um, for those of us that are a little older than 11, right, but there's a rite of passage in, in the go-kart world, all right? Once you get tall enough, right, you can ride by yourself, right? You, you can have your own. Up until now, it's always been me driving and my son right next to him, right next to me. And we win, all right? We win. That's just what we do. But my son is at this place where he really wants to drive, and he's like right at the edge of height, and I didn't know the exact height, right? So we go to the go-kart uh, facility, and we get there, and you know the board I'm talking about, right? The line, right? And I want to show you the picture of my son at the line. <laughs> just under, right? <laughs> like, look at his little sad face there, like just, right? just under, just under, right? And I promise I had this thing in my soul that was like, do I teach him tippy toes, like, right now? Like, do I teach him, do we put, like, some extra socks underneath where he's just, you know, but, but I, you know, I was, I was good, and I followed the rules, and, and so we bought our tickets, and we got in line, and uh, there's a, the facility, and there's the track that kind of snakes around, and then you know, around the track, there's all the tires, and then on the other side of the tires is the fence, and that's where we were. We were in line. And they did what you normally do with go-karts is uh, on the last lap, they yell, last lap. Well, we're, where we were, the, the, tra the track snakes around, and they come right at us, and they turn left in front of us. Well, um, they yelled, last lap, and then this young girl about the size and age of my son is driving by herself, and she's going, and she comes towards us, and instead of turning or slowing, she literally just comes towards us at full speed, right? And you ever know that, like, like it's, it's almost like it happened too quick and it was an eternity. You saw, I saw her eyes, right, and it became aware she, this is just happening. Like, she's got no power or control. This is not, and she just came 
full speed in the go-kart and hit the tires, right? And the tires hit the fence, okay? And I'm standing there like this, and my family, my son's right here, my wife, our little one, my mom, my sister, everyone's right here. And for us, thankfully, I was sitting right here, and I was able to kind of brace the fence right here, but she hit right here, and it hit the fence, and the fence actually shifted quickly, and there was a young girl right there, and it hit her directly in the mouth, right? Ter- it was, it was t- honestly, it was, it was terrifying for a moment. As she went down and she was bleeding, um, paramedics had to come. Um, she ended up being okay. I mean, she had some, some very real wounds, but not life-threatening or anything um, too extreme. But it was just kind of this sobering for me, going from like just a few seconds earlier to be like, and, you know, should my son drive this vehicle by himself? And this sobering idea of, like, sometimes there are boundaries and there are rules that we put in place for a reason because there are very real consequences, right, around certain actions that we take, right? Driving a motor vehicle, obviously, is one of them. There's a, re- there's a reason that we have rules around that. What I want to talk about today, coming off of witnessing some of this kind of sobering consequences, is the idea that we are in a series called Where the Girls Are. And you might think that this is a series about girls, but it's actually a series about how we interpret and live out the Bible. This book right here, this beautiful, amazing, complex, and even at times complicating, complicated Word of God. We gather here every single week and we come together and hopefully beyond that, we're diving in and we're wrestling through this and we're asking questions like, how do we live this out? I want to read for you an excerpt from our statement of faith concerning the Bible. It says this. This is kind of speaking over our community and part of our heart around the Word of God and how we live it out. It says, we accept the Bible, including the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, as the written Word of God. Each book is to be interpreted according to its context and purpose and in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through it in living power. All believers are exhorted to study the scriptures and diligently apply them to their lives. A lot of big words there. But we are called, I need you to feel the weight of this, right? We are called to read and interpret this word in context and purpose, and to do so diligently, right? This takes effort. This takes work. This is important. We see in the New Testament, Paul writing letters so often about giving instructions about how to do this. And in 1 Timothy 4, 16, he's writing to the young church leader, Timothy, and he says these words. He says, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teachings. Really interesting language. Keep a close watch. Almost defend it, right? Keep a close watch. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and for the salvation of those who hear you. It's really important that you get this right. It's really important that you pay attention and you, we've been talking about this right in this series, that, that culture and other influences and a lot of different things can come in, right? That it's, it's that you need to keep a close watch. Not just look once and then go out and teach for the rest of your life, but keep looking and keep looking and keep looking at the life of Jesus and keep looking at the word of God and wrestle through that. 
We wrestle through that because Paul knows, he knows that a drift can happen. And it must be defended against. Some 500 years ago, a little over 500 years ago, a priest and scholar, Martin Luther, nailed a piece of paper to the door of the castle church in Germany. And this contained the 95 revolutionary opinions that would begin what is called the Protestant Reformation. So we are Protestants. But I don't know if you recognize, sometimes words, uh, we forget their, their meaning. All right, that our origin, our spiritual lineage is that of protesters. Did you know that you're a protester? Oh, right, some of you are like, no, I'm not, right? That's your spiritual lineage. 500 years ago, as the word of God be, began to be able to be spread and, and read by multiple people, not just those Um, leaders in the church, it became clear that the Catholic church had drifted and quite a bit. And so we are children of that protesting. We are children of saying, hey, there's, this has moved away from the heart of God and we need to go back. We need, we need the drift to stop and we need to move back towards that. Now I'd love to report to you that we've got it, the drift went away 500 years ago and we are good. We are just sailing in the middle of God's will and his love, but we must recognize our reality. The Center of Global uh, Christianity at Gordon Cornwell Theological Seminary estimates that there are currently 47,000 denominations worldwide. Okay, say that again. 47,000 different ways and everybody else is saying you've drifted. Everybody's looking around saying you, I've got it right and you drifted, right? What I wanna do today is I wanna take a few minutes and talk through a few principles today that can help us to interpret and live out and even defend the teachings of Scripture. Because we have to be aware that this drift, it has happened in history. And if we think we've just got it all, and if we have the perfect teaching right and then forever, right, whatever whatever first gospel you heard, whoever that teacher was, the language that they used, the way that they communicated it, that we are to look always and be looking back at the life of Jesus. And so today, I want to teach you some, uh, some principles. Here's the thing. Just being honest, I paid quite a bit of money to go to Bible college, right? And I'm going to give you some principles for free. So you're welcome, okay? You're welcome, right? You don't have to pay for it. There's no PayPal or anything else. I'm just going to give it to you for free, okay? So I want to give you some principles. So principle number one. When trying to understand the Bible, we need to go on what's called the interpretive journey. And this journey has four steps. Step one is this, grasping the text in their town. We ask questions like, what did the text mean for the original author and their original audience? So often we grab the Bible and we just look for, because we have something going on in our life and we're looking for guidance and wisdom and purpose in our life. We're looking around and we're reading until something highlights what's going on in my life. Right? But that's not how we read this text. And now I want to use a word today that I hope carries a weight. It's a little lazy. It's a little lazy and, and at times dangerous. So we re- need to start by asking, who is this letter? What is, what are the, what is the information about um, why this is being communicated? Imagine for a second, about 18 months ago, 
that my family, you remember about 18 months ago, right, before the world kind of shifted a little bit? Imagine my family took a vacation uh, over to um, Europe, and imagine what happened 18 months ago. COVID hit, and I got stuck over there. And I am uh, a pastor here at Kesson, and I'm the campus pastor of our Columbia campus, and, and, and imagine I was over there, and one of the things I might do is actually give some instructions to our leaders here in the church being stuck over there about how, how do we do this? How do we live this out now? What do we do for our gatherings? And one of the things I may have actually written down and said to our team at that point is make sure that everyone wears a mask, right? At that point, I, I might have said that. Now, I want you to imagine that because of our and my great wisdom, that a thousand years later, people were searching through letters that happened inside of the church looking for wisdom, and they stumbled upon mine looking for how do we live this whole thing out, and they saw a letter from a church leader that says, make sure everyone wears a mask. Now, if we don't understand the context of the city that we're in and what's going on in our world, can you see how that can become a little bit dangerous, right? Without knowing the details, it's important that we start in that city. Step two, we measure the width of the river to cross. What separates us today from those original writers and leaders? Is it culture, right? We want to identify any unique differences in culture. Is it language? We want to identify words that, that maybe are different in our language as opposed to the words, did you know that the Bible wasn't written in English? Right, so we got to do some work to do this. Step three, crossing the principalizing bridge. What timeless theological principles, once we do the works of step one and step two, we can begin to find what is the principle that is being communicated here. I want to I just really quickly show you how, again, how crazy this can get. Deuteronomy 22.8, right, we're going to go into the King James Version. We're going to get some these and thous. You ready? Right, really excited for this. Deuteronomy 22.8, when thou buildest a new house, Listen to this. Then thou shalt make, shalt, sorry, shalt, get it clear, it's the word of God. Make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house, if any man fall from thence. You know what a battlement is? I want to show you. You know those notches on top of a castle, right, that, that's there? That's a, that's a battlement. I've been to some of your houses. I've never seen a battlement, okay? You... You, you Protestants, you protesters, right? If we're not careful, we read, if, we, if we get this wrong, right? We are literally, now, let's be honest, some of us, I mean, I, living in a castle would be pretty cool. <laughs> like, I wouldn't mind that. But if we get this wrong, we actually come with the full energy and passion of the word of God into some of these commands where the actual principle in this is just, um, several thousand years ago when they started to build structures that were taller than just the height of a person, it was really important to put some safety precautions because people were falling off of these and dying. And so the principle is literally human life matters. Human life matters, right? But we can miss it. And then step four is grasp the text in my own town. How can I apply those principles to my own life so that I Learn from the text what the original audience learned. And here's the sobering reality. Most of us skip straight to step four. Most of us skip straight to step four. We go right to my life. 
There are times where we get blessed by that. There are times where we're looking for wisdom and we look in Proverbs or the Psalms and we see in a story something that, that does. But friends, we, we cannot, as Paul has commanded us, we need to be looking and wrestling through this and growing in our faith. And we, this world cannot afford for us to be lazy Christians. We won't allow it. And so there's a, there's a weight that we need to carry to this. And for many of us, there's a growth that needs to happen. There's a willingness that maybe we need to do this a different way than we learned. I believe much of the hurt that has and is happening within the church is due to a lack of interpreting each book according to its context and purpose and doing so in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through it in living power. So here's what we're going to do. I just taught you the, the way to do it, one of the ways to do it, and now we're actually going to do it, and we're going to do it with one of the texts that, that, that is central to the conversation we've been having around women in the Bible. In the book of 1 Timothy, we see Paul writing a letter of instruction. We already read a few verses earlier. He's writing to this young leader, Timothy, again, instruction. So I want you to put yourself in this mindset quickly. There's a church leader who's writing another person he's, he's pouring into, and he's giving some instructions around, around how to live this whole thing out, okay? It's really important to recognize. These are just instructions. Think of any time that you're giving instructions to others, I'm giving it. This is very practical. There's a reason, though, you give those instructions, and we're going to see that. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, we, we've, we've hit a few of these verses individually, but I want to read the whole thing for us, Okay? Feel the weight of this, okay? This is Paul writing to Timothy instructions for the church. He says this in, in verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. Ladies, did you wear your good deeds, right? Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Check this out, verse 11, really important text. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. This is in the Bible, friends. For Adam was formed worse, first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. There's like chuckles happening. All ladies chuckling, by the way. None of you guys are chuckling right now. Why is that? Let the conviction settle. <laughs> but women will be saved through childbirth. This is what? I'm sorry. I've read the, like, something's going on here. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This is the passage that is most, most often quoted to deny women teaching and leading ministries in the church. In the same paragraph of Scripture, men are commanded to raise their hands when praying. By the way, I, I broke the rules and I opened my eyes when we prayed uh, for offering earlier, offering earlier. I didn't see any of you men raising your hands, all right? You protesters, right? Why is that? We see that. We see that women are forbidden to braid their hair, wear jewelry or expensive clothes, and it is asserted that women will be saved through childbirth. And Paul forbids women to teach and commands their silence. What is going on here? In an amazing display of biblical inconsistency, some faith communities insist that the command that women be silent 
is to be followed to the letter even today while the other troublesome commands in the exact same text are culturally conditioned and therefore not for today. How is that? We have to ask the question, why does Paul care about these? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let's dive into that, shall we? Thank you for asking. You guys are great. You guys are great students. See, we have some work to do. Step one, grasping the text in their own town. All right? We're literally going to go to their own town. If you journeyed to Ephesus, where, which is where Timothy was ministering, all right, the first thing that you would notice as you approach the city is the Temple of Artemis. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Okay? This giant temple that existed. I want you to imagine driving through Portland and seeing the Moda Center, the old Rose Garden, without any other tall building. Okay? That's what would happen. There was, it was the center, it was the DNA of the city. There was pride at this amazing structure that was built. This temple of the fertility goddess Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And in this time, this temple contained popular Roman fertility cults of Artemis. And these cults were a dominant influence on the entire Ephesian culture. Okay, we're going to go to their text. This is what's going on. This is where Timothy is trying to preach the gospel and grow disciples of Christ. But he's got some, he's got some work to do because people have been taught a different way to live and what God looks like. And how to live out that spirituality. So let's measure the, wor- the width of the river across. Step two, what separates us today from those original writers and readers? Again, thank you for asking. Culture. In keeping with the early trend of Christianity, the first century churches at Ephesus, also Corinth, they attracted a lot of women, particularly widows. As a result, large portions of the pastoral letters of the New Testament tackle with the mounting logistical challenges of caring for so many unmarried women. But of particular concern to Paul was a group of young widows who had infiltrated the church and developed a reputation for dressing promiscuously, sleeping around, gossiping, spreading unorthodox ideas, interrupting church services with questions, and mooching off of the church's widow's fund. Start to become aware that those crazy things that Paul said, there's a reason why he's giving some direction. Many scholars believe these women to have been influenced by the popular Roman fertility cults of Artemis that we referenced earlier that encouraged women to flaunt their sexuality and freedom to a degree that scandalized even the Romans. Right? The Romans didn't blush, yet they blushed for these ladies, this group of people. These cults were also known for both their false teaching that Eve preceded Adam in creation. Remember that in our text? Why did Paul need to clarify that Adam came before Eve? Need to clarify that. And for commandeering authority in an argumentative, abusive, and domineering manner. We have to measure culture. And also language. And Paul wrote this you remember, and this is one of the things that we have to get right, friends. Paul wrote, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have this word authority over a man. This word authority, or authenteo, is a rare word whose most common meaning is negative, referring to a domineering or aggressive or violent wielding of authority. Most of us have experienced this at some point. You've experienced someone who had authority over you, a boss, or someone who did so in an unhealthy and even abusive way, right? 
when we hear the word authority in our language, we don't think of that, right? We normally have to attach abusive to it. But in the Greek, this word that was selected by Paul, that by the way does not show up any other place in the New Testament, all right, was selected for this reason. This is the cultural context that Paul is addressing. Do you see how we can get off if we, if we don't do the work of interpretation? If we don't do the, the real work of getting this, I don't know, even know if right is the right way, getting into the center of God's heart and his will and his calling for the church and then ourselves as the church. Step three, cross the principalizing bridge. What timeless theological principles exist in this passage? Well, we see that having order in a church and faith setting and not chaos as what was happening is vital to doing the important work of the gospel that Jesus had commanded us to do in making disciples. Paul is writing to Timothy so that order is established and not chaos. See, Paul knew what every skilled discipler does. That unlearning is a vital step in growing in Christ-likeness. That there is a group of people in this community with a ton of influence. They learned how to have that influence and how they grew up in the temple of Artemis. But the problem is, and this is true for all of us, by the way, right? Friends, if you want to influence others for Christ, then your character has to exceed your influence. We, store, we see story after story. I mean, lately, how often do you see a story of a church leader or someone that's so gifted, and we use this word anointed, that falls? Why is that? Can't it be the structures that we've put into place applaud those that show up with a lot of influence and don't take the time to establish character and integrity, the kind that Paul knows is necessary in building a young church? And so we have to put some guidelines, some fences, some tires around to say, as we're building this thing, there has to be, there's a beauty to it, but there's also a danger if you drift. Step four, grasping the text in my own time. How do we apply these principles in our own life? See, friends, our center of gravity is Jesus. Almost all of the arguments for limits upon the roles of women are centered around Old Testament commands and Paul's writing when they're just read without the full context of the full story and the God who came in flesh. And both are to be interpreted in light of Jesus' life and teaching and not the other way around. One more principle for you. Scripture interprets Scripture. We have to read the whole story. This is, a, this is a library of books, 66 different books. There's a lot of content over a lot of years, and we have to wrestle through that. Psalm 18, God is described as our defender and our protector. We talked about that Ada. Paul, Paul was calling Timothy and saying, there's some things that you need to defend. And this defender, we get our marching orders from our defender, right? He shows us how to do it. And I want to highlight something for you, okay? For especially men, I think a lot of us feel a call in a good way to be defenders, right? 
but one of the conversations we need to have is that you're not the only one. That doesn't mean you set down your responsibility as a defender, but it also means that you don't push others away that are also called to fulfill the same calling. In the Old Testament and New Testaments that of this Bible that we cling to, women exercise significant ministry roles of teaching and leading with God's blessing. A few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the story of King David and Goliath. But there's a story actually that preceded this a couple hundred years before. A story of the people of God being oppressed by foreign um, rulers in the life of Deborah in the book of Judges. And she is introduced in this way. Deborah, a prophet, was leading Israel at that time. She became disturbed by the unchallenged domination of her people by their enemies and felt called to take the matter into her own hands. And Deborah was the highest leader in Israel at that time, even though she was married. And she, rather than her husband, was chosen by God to lead and defend his people. The defender called on a defender. And who was that? So friends, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm revealing anything new to you, but I am trying to poke holes in some of the ways that we've built the structures in the church that literally doesn't, that doesn't allow God to teach us what defending looks like. But we've, we've chosen our own cultural context. We've kind of chosen, and this is, I, I want to honor this too, that for many of us as we grew up in church settings and, and had teachings, we experienced the love and grace of those who might have, might have had a few interpretational areas that were a little off. Maybe they were taught in some really um, complicated ways. And so there's a complication, there's a wrestling that happens inside of us, which is like, wait a second, do I have to throw out everything now? And I don't think that's how this works. I think we do what Paul calls us to do, which is always look, always wrestle, always ask questions like, how do I live this out now? What does love and grace look like in this time, and in this way, and in my life? We see through the story of the Bible, God bringing up defenders, and not just men. We see that Jesus himself was deep, deeply countercultural in the ways that he honored and included women in and through his own earthly ministries. In a culture where women were generally viewed as being responsible for the evil in the world and were strictly segregated from the social and religious life of the communities as inferior and unteachable, Jesus treated women with dignity and honor and included them in his ministry. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus, she announced to the world that Christ had come. We see Anna, a prophetess and evangelist in the temple who continually and publicly spoke out about Jesus. We see Mary of Bethany was the only person among Jesus' disciples to grasp the significance of his repeated declarations that he would soon die and be resurrected. We see influential women that supported Jesus' ministry financially, we see that women stood by Jesus at the cross and some lingered and watched his burial when most of the men, most of the disciples had already fled. We see that Jesus first appeared to women after his resurrection and he commissioned them as the first witnesses of the good news in a culture where women were traditionally prohibited from being witnesses in the courts. And do you see the significance of this? that Jesus is teaching us the way, but we can miss it. 
We see that in the early church, women prayed with the apostles in the upper room. The Holy Spirit fell on both men and women at Pentecost. And that women in the early church were persecuted and suffered for their faith because of their activity in ministry and proclamation made them targets for persecution. See, friends, I begin by talking about Paul's letter to a young church and defense. See, he's right. There are many things in this world that we need to defend against. And, and church, though, we have the responsibility of getting this right. It is vital for the sake of the church and the generations to come that those defenses are aimed in the right direction. We can't be lazy. This is probably going to require a high level of humility and curiosity and quite a few questions and a lot of wrestling and, and a lot of ability to say, I, I don't know. Or, or maybe even I don't know yet. For a lot of us, that's hard to do. That's, it's difficult to not know. It's okay to know the gospel, but to have some of these these other texts that are difficult to interpret, um, it's okay to have, have to wrestle through that. We have a defender that's been defending for much longer than you, by the way. And he's been teaching his church how to do so for a long time, and some have listened and some haven't. And I pray that we are a church that does. I pray that we are a community that looks at the young women. Many of them are being discipled right over there. And with God, wants to fan into flame the gift that God has given them. And doesn't put fences around it. I pray that you do too. That is the story that we can tell as a community, come what may. But it's going to take some work. It's going to take some humility. It's going to take some curiosity and some wrestling. Um, I just don't want to live another way. This way is hard. It's difficult. Can you imagine how hard that was for Martin Luther to go push against all of Christian leadership? And say, I think, you've, I think you've drifted. I think you've drifted. We may have drifted. And by the way, friends, this is a conversation. This isn't the only conversation that we need to have. We need to go topic by topic over and over again through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. Not just when we need a verse for today, but through the Word of God diligently. So that we make sure that we don't drift anywhere. And that we are living examples of Christ the best of our ability, broken, yes, at times, but moving towards Christ-likeness. So I just want to pray for us today. We're going to close in some worship. I want to pray a challenge over you. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? I pray, I pray a conviction into our hearts and into our lives. I pray, Lord, that your spirit comes. And if there's, a, if there's a place that we have helped perpetuate 
things that aren't true, areas that we've drifted. I pray for a humility and a willingness to raise our hands and say, I might have gotten that wrong, or maybe just incomplete. I pray that the men in this room and that are watching online realize maybe the best defending that they can do is starting with that humility. I pray for... Lord, I'm reminded that Martin Luther, at the top of his thesis that was nailed, he wrote that all of a Christian's life is that of repentance. That we are continually growing, continually learning, continually turning away from things that aren't God. And I pray that we never grow weary of turning towards him. Jesus, empower us. Teach us how to defend. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You go before I know that you've even gone to win my war. You come back with the head of my enemy. You come back and you call it my victory. Hey.
Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next time.